the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Well, Richard, what was that very enthusiastic crowd noise? And tell me, where are you? I am right now in the centre of Bruges, Lionel, at the in the in the fan zone at the uh, at the World Championships. It's Monday, and we're in between the under twenty three time trot and the women's time trot. And the noise that we opened with there, well, that was the sound of Remco Evenepoel finishing yesterday's men's time trial. Um, he went into the hot seat at the time held on for third place uh, to give Belgium the home nation silver and bronze because Wout van Aert of course finished second Philippe Ghana defended his title to become again the men's time trial champion but yeah I'm here in Bruges at the World Championships and it feels like I, I guess we expected the World Championships in Flanders to feel in a way pretty lively pretty bustly and quite international you know I, I can see you can all see Norwegian flags can't you uh, and there are a few Norwegian fans here and and a few from other countries too they're not not as many as you would normally see at a World Championship but it's it's a good atmosphere and it was a great atmosphere yesterday for the men's time trial well it's the celebratory UCI World Championships, isn't it? Because it's the centenary of the first road World Championships, which were in... Do you remember where? I mean, I'm, I'm not asking you... I don't remember. You remember. No, where, I wasn't you, where there. you were there in 1921. I, I couldn't get accreditation for that one. <laughs> in Copenhagen, in Denmark, in 1921. No time trial uh, then, of course, because it was just a road race. Um, won by a Swedish rider, Gunnar Skold. And, uh, Who could forget... Who can forget? Yes. And the, well, this is a celebratory World Championships in more ways than one, isn't it? Because it, watching on the TV, as I have done so far, Richard, the crowds look absolutely fantastic and it does feel very uplifting. It is almost as if COVID never happened because they were six, seven, ten deep in places and the noise was uh, coming through the TV very, very clearly. Obviously, Remco got. Uh, cheered all the way round and then so did Van Aert and then there was an absolutely deathly silence when Filippo Ganna um, hit the line and denied Belgium the gold medal I don't know whether uh, that's me just projecting or whether it did feel a little bit flat for the home fans when Ghana took gold Yeah I think I think so um, you know I, I was actually asking some of our Belgian colleagues who's more popular uh, Wout Van Aert or Remco Evenepoel because uh, Van Aert is the more accomplished, the older rider. Um, Evenepoel's the great hope for the future, and he rides for a Belgian team, and I wondered if that made a difference, but I was told it was pretty um, unanimous that Van Aert is the, the more popular figure in, in Belgium. Um, and, uh, you know, Evenepoel is popular too, but Van Aert is sort of universally loved, whereas Evenepoel seems ever so slightly more divisive in a way, and um, I, I think... The, the 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 strength of support for Van Aert certainly came through yesterday and uh, yeah I think the cyclocross as well makes a difference there that's a kind of that, that's something that has uh, 
gained Van Aar a, a big and very enthusiastic following over the years. Um, I mean, just watching that podium, though, I, I think we're going to talk about the men's time trial, aren't we, in this first part, to see little Remco Evenepoel alongside these two giants, comparatively speaking, in Ghana and Van Aar. You were quite struck by, you know, just the, the sort of power he, he must put out to... Uh, compete with those guys he's so small in comparison and as Daniel said a couple of weeks ago he, he sort of speaks a, a language in cycling that he's not familiar with um, and or he cycles in a language that he doesn't understand and he is he's an unusual talent isn't he even the pole um, still so young still and, and so slightly built I was going to almost said still so slightly built but so slightly built and so capable on these and it was a pan flat time trial course it was a pure um, time trial effort uh, and you'd have thought it would favour you know big powerful rulers like Ghana and Van Aert but uh, I thought Evenepoel's performance was arguably the sort of performance of the day Yeah you mentioned how flat it was Richard the flattest time trial at the World Championships since Doha in Qatar in 2016 a on uh, this course there are only 78 metres of elevation in 43.3 kilometres and it reminded me a little bit of a three days of Dapana time trial from back when that was a, a mini stage race and they would finish with the time trial on the final afternoon. The, the scenery um, and the, the fact that it started up on the coast and then headed uh, through the countryside and finished in a very charming city of Bruges, which I'm sure you've been enjoying. Uh, I suppose they were hoping perhaps that the wind might blow, which would have made it a very different type of test, but that would have possibly tilted the favour even more strongly in favour of the of the big units because they get carried along like sails if there's a tailwind and uh, they've got the the pure punch and power um, if it's a head or cross headwind I suppose yeah but it was very still you'll be able to tell me Rich it, it looked very still people were saying it was very still yeah it was still yes it's still today it was quite breezy this morning um, actually but it's died down and it's it looks perfectly still now for the the women's time trial um, yeah there were a few riders yesterday. Uh, complaining a little bit about you know well not complaining but just observing that it hadn't been a course that suited them Stefan Kung was one of them who said that he you know much prefers um climbs or you know undulations um where it breaks the rhythm a bit and just allows him as he put it to punch through I think Evan Nepal as well would have preferred a, a slightly uh, hillier course and, and time trials like Dumula they prefer um, hillier courses, Roglic I guess as well, um, Ghana's just a pure, pure time trial isn't it and and I guess the other takeaway was is just again to underline the phenomenal ability of Van Aert in so many different areas of the sport, disciplines of the sport because yeah this was a, a this was the sort of course that, that suited Ghana, the, the best time trials in the world, down to the ground and Van Aert really pushed them all the way you know and Van Aert's a guy who can win a Mont Ventoux he can win a bunch sprint he can he can do anything can't he and and to get so close to Ghana on a on a course like this again just underlines his ability and the form that he's in and he's had a lot of silver medals now in his career and I'm sure a lot of people would not begrudge him a road world title on Sunday when we've got the men's road race but we'll be talking about that a bit later on Lionel, won't we? We're going to hear from Kasper Askreen, who will read, a, or he won't lead, he'll be part of a very strong Danish team. We'll hear from Tim de Klerk as well on the the men's road race. Um, but that Danish team, uh, which is very strong here in, in Bruges, has had a, a really unbelievable tragedy to contend with at the start of these world championships. 
Um, they got underway in a really sombre atmosphere because there was awful news on Saturday evening of the death of Chris Anker Sorensen, the former rider who for the last couple of years has worked for uh, Danish media and he was here in Bruges to cover the World Championships for the Danish media, went out on his bike on Saturday and was hit by a van and died and uh, it meant the World Championships got underway with a in a, in a sombre atmosphere, it was news and a, and a tragedy that really rocked an awful lot of people, not just people in the Danish team, but he was a very a very popular figure, a very likeable guy as a rider and in post-career working in the media. Um, just a, a terrible, a terribly sad thing to get your head around at the start of what should have been or what was intended to be a celebratory World Championships. Um, and a reminder, I suppose, I mean, I, we often talk about Belgium as being, in theory, at least one of the, the safest places to ride your bike because the infrastructure here for cycling is incredible. I, I went out on my bike this morning and three quarters of the ride was on segregated cycling paths. But you only need one thing to go wrong with a, a vehicle and, uh, and you know, you're, you're always at, at risk on a bike. And, and if somebody of Anker Sorensen's skill and experience can... Uh, be killed while riding his bike then really any of us can and and that was the stark reminder of, of his death which is uh, of no consolation to anybody whatsoever and it's just an incredible sadness and at the end of this episode we'll hear from Brian Nygaard who some of you will remember or most of you remember hopefully from our Giro coverage Brian worked with Chris Anker Sorensen for many years and knew him very well so we'll hear from Brian on Chris Anker Sorensen at the end of the episode Yes, Richard, terribly sad news about Chris Anker Sorensen, a Giro d'Italia stage winner, of course, and a very aggressive rider in the mountains, uh, sort of a pure climber, wasn't he? And, uh, well, the World Championships went on today with the under-23 men's time trial, and there was a Danish winner, Johan Price Peterson. And I'm sure that before the men's road race and, and perhaps some of the other races over the weekend, um, the Danish riders and the whole peloton will pay tribute to Chris Anker Sorensen. And Price Peterson was very emotional uh, at the finish and he explained afterwards in his press conference that, you know, Anker Sorensen was very much in his thoughts. And uh, something that Casper Askreen said yesterday as well, that when he was he was suffering out there in the time trial, he was, he was thinking of him and trying to, to dig a bit deeper in his memory, if you like. And... I don't know, people might remember as well, it, we didn't have an under-23 or junior world titles last year, of course. Um, two years ago, the last under-23 time trial um, in Harrogate, you remember that Price Peterson was the rider who was kind of, um, I, I don't know how to put it, he, he, he came off spectacularly in the time trial when he, he rode into what he thought was shallow standing water and it turned into almost a lake in the middle of the road do you remember that there's there's incredible video footage of his bike being kind of swept away and uh, well he made up for that today by by winning the time trial here and in, in, it, it, it carries on an incredible run by the Danes because Mikael Bjerg won three titles in a row uh, of the under 23 title and uh, Johan Price Peterson continues that run the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches and now you can wear the super sapiens energy band the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from abbott's libra sense glucose sport biosensor 
The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thank you very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Very grateful to them for their support. And if you'd like to know more about Super Sapiens, how Super Sapiens can help you if you're an athlete or a coach, go to supersapiens.com. Now, Lionel, I know you were studying the time trial intently. I mean, it was... Uh, you know, we talk about being in a, a sort of golden age of, of cycling talent at the moment, don't we? And that applies in time trialling too, I think. And it was a real ding-dong between Van Aert and Ghana and a, a pretty thrilling finale to, to the time trial, I thought, with those two being so close, the last two riders off and it really coming down to a race between them. Yeah, it was a, a showdown between the pair of them, but it was I thought it was a really interesting uh, time trial the way it unfolded I I know sometimes I'm a little bit down on time trialling as a television spectacle but I do like a championship time trial where everything is on the line you know the gold silver and bronze medals are on the line I think perhaps in grand tours sometimes there's a risk with particularly long time trials that they can do so much uh, damage in the general classification that you, you end up feeling a little bit flat at the end of the day thinking well that has completely altered the shape of the race whereas when it is just a championship, um, it's it's an absorbing watch. And I particularly uh, enjoyed the fact that Evanapol had the hot seat for so much of the afternoon as, as some really good time trialists came in and, and, and didn't topple his time. I mean, if we just go back to the, the start of the early starters, uh, an Italian rider, Matteo Sobrero, set the fastest time. And then Dan Bigham of Great Britain went faster but he didn't I don't think he even got to sit in the hot seat he may well have done but his but his backside possibly only rested on the luxurious plastic chair for a few seconds before Max Valscheid came in uh, he was the next finisher and uh, then Stefan Bissiger who I thought was an outside shot for a medal um, he took the lead and before he knew it, Evnepal came in and, and Evnepal really blew Bissiger's time away, didn't he? For 42 seconds quicker. And then we saw the old man, Tony Martin, who we'll talk about in the end of this part because he announced his retirement uh, on the eve of the championships or confirmed his retirement at the end of the season. Tony Martin came in in second place behind Evnepal. Kasper Asklin of Denmark then pushed Martin down a place. And then it was all about the big two because, as you said, Stefan Kuhn didn't uh, didn't excel on this kind of course. And, well, did Wout van Aert go out a bit too quick? He was, I think, about seven or eight seconds up on Ghana at the first checkpoint. And then they were split by only 0.84 of a second at the second checkpoint. But van Aert was still narrowly ahead. But it was obvious that Ghana had you know, judged the effort and uh, had a bit more in the tank over the, the latter stages of the course. And when he hit the line, you know, it was, it was, Ganna had time as he came into the finishing straight to uh, clock that he had won and he had time to take his hands off the bar and bars and punch the air. But it was close, wasn't it? Only six seconds and a real nip and tuck battle between two obviously very good time trialists. But perhaps on that flat course, it was the, the pure specialism of uh, Filippo Ganna that, that, that told over uh, Wout van Aert, who obviously no slouch against the clock, but um, you know perhaps even more of an all-round rider than Ghana. Yeah, I was surprised that Ghana was so confident to to punch the air like that. Um, but it, it, you know, um, Van Aert did go through that first check quickest, and then um, 
Ghana was was sort of closing all the time, and 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 he judged it perfectly. And he said afterwards, actually, that he had really quite consciously eased off on the power, as he put it, at the start. Um, it was quite technical at, at the start, and he wanted to ride into it. You know, he is he is the best time trialist in the world. I think there's no question about that. But he's not he's not been completely dominant, has he? He's had a few upsets and disappointments. I think a lot of us would have maybe put the Olympic time trial down as, as one of those although he said that he wouldn't have that his priority in Tokyo was the was the team pursuit and he wouldn't have actually even ridden the, the time trial in Tokyo had he not won the world time trial in Imola last year so I, I don't know but he obviously felt that in Tokyo uh, it was a, a slightly compromised effort in the time trial and here he was at his best um, and you know at his best he's just that little bit better than everybody else I guess um, and especially on a course like this but yeah Van Aert um, Van Aert went close and he's gone close to a lot of titles recently and like I said he's he's got a decent chance I would have thought a very decent chance on Sunday of, of getting that the the rainbow jersey of world champion champion in the road race you mentioned Tony Martin um, Lionel a, a really strong uh, performance from him in his last uh, time trial and his second last race because he'll actually finish after Wednesday's mixed time trial that'll be the end of his career and he's in order to retire at this point he's actually um, broken his contract with Jumbo Visma but he said that they were, have been supportive of that he, he's brought the curtain down a bit early because um, a, a big factor seems to be the crashes that he's had I mean we all remember the crash at the Tour de France on, on day one um, when he hit the, the sign being held out by that lady and took down his entire team, suffered nasty injuries and that. But he's had a lot of nasty crashes over recent years. Um, but uh, just on, on his his um, record in the, the time trial, um, 13 rides in the individual time trial and his, the lowest result, ninth place. Um, pretty phenomenal. He won five, sorry, four uh, world titles in his career I think you, we're going to hear from Tony Martin in a moment because he, he's not always the easiest guy to interview I did write about this in our book a couple of years ago when I found myself um, about a foot away from him at the finish of a Vuelta stage and he he almost came to halt actually on my foot uh, and it seemed the natural thing to ask him for an interview and he he refused not only did he refuse but he refused to make eye contact as well so that was an awkward moment um, but he was in a, a more relaxed uh, mood at the finish of the the time trial and he spoke at some length there about his bringing the, the curtain down in his career and his thoughts at the end of a, a long and very successful career well before we hear from Tony Martin Rich uh, I was looking back at his career uh, because it really is on the one hand, some very high-profile wins, and on the other, some really high-profile and quite spectacular crashes. And uh, he's 36 years old now, and as you say, four-time world time trial champion, and he's absolutely dominated the German time trial championships, including uh, a run of 10 wins in a row. And he's a five-time Tour de France stage winner as well. But an interesting character and somebody well, it'd be good to catch up with when perhaps he's retired and, and wants to look back on his career. He might, uh, he might look you in the eye and actually uh, you know, engage in conversation, Rich. I don't know. But uh, he was born in East Germany in 1985 before the Berlin Wall came down. And 
One of the things that intrigues me about him and I'd like to know more about is that his family escaped East Germany not long before the war came down. Uh, they did actually then move back into the eastern part of Germany after unification. And he actually went to the Erfurt Sports School, which is the same one that Marcel Kittel later went to. And that's where he sort of began his education as a cyclist. And he turned pro for High Road, um, rode for them initially and then did five years with Omega Pharma Quick Step. And then a couple of seasons at Katusha where really he looked a bit like a square peg in a round hole, didn't really have a sort of clearly defined role. But that's certainly something that he found at Jumbo Visma where uh, he became um, a sort of road captain figure. And so we'll remember him, I guess, as a, not only a world-class time trial rider, but also a winner of week-long stage races. He won Paris-Nice back in 2011. He won the Eneco Tour, three tours of Belgium and uh, was an excellent climber and very, very strong in the breakaways. If you think back to his first Tour de France in 2009, he finished second to Juan Margarate on the Mont Ventoux stage right at the very end of that tour. Um, uh, we just, uh, can't forget... Uh, yeah, just just add to that line. I remember Brian Holm also saying that uh, that he could have ridden and won Paris-Roubaix in his career. Um, he was always sort of trying to get him to do that. He never... Never did focus on that, but he, yeah, he was, he, he, he did different things at different points. He looked like he might be turning himself into a stage racer around the time of that Paris Nice win, um, and then latterly, you know, he became that sort of uh, almost Tim de Clerk-like figure for Jumbo Visma, um, the rider who'd, who'd be on the front for for so long. Um, it does put Rohan Dennis's recent signing in a in a fresh light, doesn't it? Because he would seem to be perhaps physically at least a, a replacement for Tony Martin. Yeah, especially when you think of the way that Dennis rode in the Giro with Theo Gagan-Hart last year, because one of the outstanding rides of Martin's career was in 2014. Do you remember the stage to Mulhouse, which went over all the climbs in the Vosges, including the Grand Ballon, I think it was. And he was away solo for 60 kilometres after dropping everyone else in the break and, and in uh, the last man with him was Alessandro De Marchi, I think. Uh, I mean, that was uh, an outstanding stage win. He held the yellow jersey in 2015 after winning the Paris-Roubaix-style stage, didn't he? The cobbled stage to Cambrai and was in the yellow um, uh, when a couple of days later he crashed very heavily in the final kilometre of a really hectic finish and broke his collarbone into several pieces and, and had to pull out of the race. And... Even in 2016, you know, some some interesting um, ends to his tour. 2016, he made it all the way to the Champs-Élysées but pulled out when they reached the team buses because he was experiencing uh, severe knee pain which had come on the previous day in the Alps. I guess he had his eye on the Olympic time trial in Rio where he was 12th. And then in 2019... Remember, he was disqualified from the tour along with Luke Rowe after they had that clash of road captains um, on the road to Gap, it was, wasn't it? A boiling hot day when temperatures uh, were heated in more than one way. Uh, but he, yeah, perhaps that day took his role of his, as the enforcer in Jumbo Visma a little bit too seriously. But he did become a very much a part of that team's engine room. And I suppose the way his tour ended this year... Um, you know, he crashed on the stage to Mont Ventoux and pulled out of the race, but he'd also been brought down in that incident, as you said, Richard, crashing into the sign that was held right out into the middle of the road. And it is interesting that he uh, has cited the, the danger in the peloton as one of the reasons. So let's hear your chat with Tony Martin 
uh, recorded after yesterday's time trial, where he finished sixth, by the way. How important was it to you to go out and end your career as a, a time trialist with such a strong performance today? Um, it was really, really, really important. Um, I'm really happy that uh, my team supported me um, to, to end my career here in, in the World Championships. Um, it was always my favorite race and uh, in the world I always had my biggest biggest victories and um, so the circle closed here and um, I'm really happy to, to, to end my career in this great atmosphere even when I couldn't uh, go for the medals. Uh, I'm still proud that I could be there with the best, uh, not the not the really best, but uh, I was uh, still close, and um, so I'm satisfied, and um, I really enjoyed it um, the way I did it, and um, yeah, now we go for for the for the last fight on Wednesday. I hope that there will be uh, more possible. Um, from then on, I will uh, enjoy professional cycling from the side, um, but also nice. I'm really looking forward to it, and. Um, Looking also forward to, to the new things that will come. So I'm really curious how, uh, how the second part of my life uh, will be. When did you make the decision? Was it a, a gradual thing or was there any particular moment? You mentioned crashes and you've, you've had a lot of terrible crashes recently, but was there a particular moment? Yeah, yeah actually I made, I made a decision a few days after my bad crash and uh, the Tour de France that cost me uh, to, to, to quit uh, the tour. I had this, this thought in my head, but I still uh, gave me some time to, to really think about it. Uh, but after a few weeks, uh, yeah, thoughts were still in my head and uh, somehow it felt right. And I spoke to my family, to my friends, to my team, and they all supported me 100%. And um, so, um, yeah, I made this decision and for the moment, uh, until there, I, I never regret it. Um, and especially, uh, I'm, I'm really happy that the, the, the team supported me in this way and uh, that, that they gave me the chance to, to end my career as I wished. And um, for me, uh, yeah, it's, it's really the perfect surrounding here. Um, it, it feels really good. and. Doesn't matter which uh, result I, I did today. Um, it's, it's just nice to be here uh, with, with the fans, with my closest uh, people, and uh, yeah, to say goodbye here in Belgium. Can you pick out one performance or result from your career that is, is of a special, important satisfaction to you? Yeah, when I when I'm asked for my biggest victory. Actually, the, the World Championships in Copenhagen uh, 10 years ago comes directly in my head. Um, it was actually my breakthrough, my biggest uh, result um, until there. And uh, I think this feeling I, I will remember my whole life. And uh, for me, I would say it's, it's the nicest and most emotional um, victory. I think you'll be emotional on Wednesday. Or are you emotional now? Yeah, I always already told everybody. Um, mostly, I, I realized the big, the big results, the big victories, also the, the, the most important decisions 
after a few days when I'm alone, when I have time to think about it. Um, I think then I will get um, a bit more emotional, um, but uh, I think it will be when I'm, when I'm alone and not um, here, I hope so. Chute, chute à l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind us to tell you that this episode is sponsored by our very good friends at Curators of Craft. And you can find out more about them at curatorsofcraft.co.uk. And stand by because there's also an offer for listeners too. Curators of Craft was founded by Graham and Kate, who are both avid cyclists, big cycling fans, and fans of the cycling podcast. And one of the things they love about travel is sampling the food and beverages that different countries have to offer. And their passion for craft beer began in 2014, after a trip to North America and Europe. And they started the business late last year, after Graham lost his job because of the COVID pandemic. And they very quickly made it their business to curate the best small batch beers craft beers and Trappist ales from independent brewers in the UK, Europe, Scandinavia and the US. And they're very selective too. Um, They very kindly sent me a box and it would have been remiss of me this week not to have started with the two beers that span Flanders, one from the east, Westmaller, and one from the west, Roddenbach. And I particularly enjoyed the Westmaller Trappist Extra. Now, I like the Westmaller Double and Triple beers but they are really quite punchy and this is considerably lighter at just 4.8 percent but it loses none of the depth of flavor Um, so that's one to really look out for the Westmaller Trappist Extra or how about the Roddenbach which is from a brewery in Rusalada where there is a very fine cycling museum and it's also where the Doisdor Vlaanderen one day race starts Um, So the Roddenbach is, uh, well, it's complex and fruity, um, quite typical of uh, a Flandrian beer. And uh, yeah, you'll get a sort of a a fruity, woody, vanillary, almost caramel flavour in the the finish of the palate. Uh, It's not just Flandrian beers. These are the ones I've been enjoying while the World Championships have been on. But the selections come from all across North America, Scandinavia, Europe and the UK. And you can either pick your own beers or you can trust Graham and Kate to curate a box for you. And I recommend you do that. And once you've placed an order you can even open a monthly subscription and get regular deliveries so go to curatorsofcraft.co.uk to see what they have to offer and there is currently 15 percent off all orders over 40 pounds for our listeners and free uk mainland delivery on all orders over 60 pounds but you need to use the code worlds 15 that's w-o-r-l-d-s 15 the numbers one and five Go to curatorsofcraft.co.uk or check them out on social media. Well, Lionel, we're deep into the episode, but there has been other stuff going on apart from the World Championship time trials. Um, Have you got a little news round up for us, please? Well, I'll try to keep it a little rich, but there's been so much racing going on, hasn't there? I will try and recap it as tightly as I possibly can. First of all, just a bit of transfer news, because it does now look like Miguel Anca Lopez is going to go back to Astana. And the will-he-won't-he saga of Mark Cavendish extending his stay with De Koenig Quickstep seems to have been ironed out. It looks like he struck an agreement with Patrick Lefebvre after Lefebvre kind of gave... Uh, Uh, the indication in the Belgian media that they were a little way apart in terms of valuation. Um, But the racing... Yeah, let's keep our eyes on that one, though, I think. Um, We'll maybe try and speak to Mark Cavendish later in the week, but 
I'm pretty sure nothing's been agreed yet and uh, you know we've only got Lefebvre's word on that at the moment so wow. let's keep an eye on it Lefebvre um, was speaking to Daniel this morning Daniel is here working for the BBC um, Lefebvre went on Belgian TV last night um, and was allegedly uh, slightly the worse for wear um, you see it tre- trending on Twitter is uh, Lefebvre drunken mm. which uh, I don't speak Flemish but I think <laughs> That means he had a couple of glasses of wine on Belgian telly last night. Well, yes, I remember interviewing him in Spain after he had clearly had quite a big night. Um, that episode went out. Uh, oh God, it feels like a feels like a lifetime ago now, but it was before COVID. Um, but yeah, De Koenig Quickstep have had a pretty good week. Maybe that explains it. I think they won seven races across the week. Uh, Joao Almeida won the Tour of Luxembourg ahead of Mark Hershey and his own teammate Matteo Catania. Uh, Almeida, Hershey, Sasha Modelo and David Godu won stages there. Uh, Catania won the time trial. There was the Tour of Slovakia. Now, I don't know whether this indicates anything for the weekend, uh, but Peter Sagan won his home tour for the first time in his career and uh, yet more De Koenig Quickstep success in the form of stage wins for Alvaro Hodge and Yannick Stiemler. Uh, Itamar Einhorn, the sprinter with Israel Startup Nation, who Daniel spoke to during the uh, Welter, won a stage there too. And then it's a, a case of world championship warm-up races really of of various different types in italy they have this run of one-day races don't they leading towards the worlds and michael valgren of ef education nipo won a couple of them the giro della toscana and coppa sabatini he took both of those they're his first victories since the 2018 amstel gold race Uh, The memorial Marco Pantani in Cesenatico, Pantani's hometown, of course, was won by the newly crowned European champion Sonny Colbrelli. Uh, He's looking good at going into the weekend's road race because he was also second to Valgren at the Coppa Sabatini. And on Sunday, while all eyes were on the time trial there in Belgium, Matteo Trentin won the Trofeo Matteotti. So um, we'll pick some... Uh, hints and tips as to who's going well ahead of the weekend from those races. Meanwhile, in Belgium, leading up to the World Championships, the Grand Prix de Wallonie was won by Christophe Laporte of Cofidis. The Championship Van Vlaanderen was won by Jasper Philipsen, who then added the Eschborn Frankfurt World Tour race in Germany ahead of John Degenkolb and Alexander Christoph. Florian Seneschal, another De Koenig quickstep rider, won the classic Impanis Van Petegem. And Fabio Jakobsen, of course, Seneschal's teammate won Greek's appeal. So he's, uh, the, well, the pair of them who were contesting the wins, going, well, helping one another and then going up against one another in the welter. They've, they've both won races. And lastly, the Grand Prix Isberge in northern France, won by Elia Viviani of Cofidis. And just a quick word for Leo Hayter, the younger brother of Ethan Hayter, who was eighth in the World Championship time trial for Great Britain. Leo Hayter won the under-23 Liège-Baston-Liège at the weekend, uh, a very prestigious race for under-23s and a, a pretty reliable indicator of, of uh, future success, really. Yes, I spoke to Ethan Hayter after the finish of the time trial yesterday and he was obviously uh, cock-a-hoop at his brother's success. Um, he said, and I've read a bit about this, that Leo Hayter's had a, a tough time uh, throughout the last couple of years the, the COVID years with not racing and really feeling like he was stuck, I think, in common with a lot of younger riders, especially, who've, who've just not had the racing. I mean, I was looking at uh, 
some of the, you know, we go, we always turn to pro cycling stats, don't we, to see what riders have been up to, especially under 23 riders. And so many of, of these guys have just not raced or barely raced at all the last couple of years. Um, and it's even worse in the junior ranks. So um, I think he has found himself feeling very uncertain about his cycling career, Leo Hater, and that's a huge, huge win for him. Um, uh, a couple of other odds and sods from the, the time trial yesterday, Lionel. Um, I caught up with a couple of interesting people, people who we've had on the, the podcast in the, the past. Um, the first of them, Marcus Christie. Friends of the podcast will know Marcus Christie's story. Daniel spent a lot of time um, really getting to know Marcus, an Irish rider who's had some incredible ups and downs and near misses in his career. Um, and we released a, a special for Friends of the Podcast earlier this year, which had an amazing response from people, um, mainly people who didn't know who Marcus Christie was, and they were um, completely captivated by his story. Um, and I guess him riding here, the time trial on Bradley Wiggins' old bike, um, which <laughs> which uh, is part of the story that he tells in that in that Friends special. Um, it kind of, uh, it's the latest extraordinary chapter in his story. Um, and if anybody, well, those of you familiar with his story will, will, I'm sure, be keen to find out what happened next with him. So I caught up with him at the finish of the time trial yesterday. How is it to be here and how, how did that go? Yeah, it's a fantastic experience to be here, first and foremost. And the atmosphere is unbelievable. Uh, the first 20 minutes, I think I settled in there quite well and was right on pace and then it started biting a bit and maybe I was like 5-10% low below where I should normally be but I dug in and kept it going and uh, I think I have to be happy with the right all things considered um, at the halfway point I did lose the radio so the, the back end of the final I was a bit unsure about a few bends so looking back I've messed up a bit there but I mean again I have to be happy I think and I mean, we we sort of left your story, I guess, in the spring um, with the the comeback and the you were being coached by Shane Sun at the time. Are you still being coached by Shane? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I hadn't met Shane back then, I wouldn't be here today, to be honest. So I owe him a lot. Um, he's been a tremendous help, and he's a great guy, really. And yeah, it's been a it's been a whirlwind since we've done that podcast, and it kind of just really did spark the the fire once again for cycling. So. It's it's a funny story. Is that how you feel? I mean, have you? Because we know your story in the in the past. You've, you know, you've had lots of problems and difficulties. Have you felt this year? Have you found a kind of a balance? And have you, you know, is that that? Obviously, you're here, so you've had a a successful year. But have you found that kind of equilibrium? I suppose. Yeah, uh, big time. I think uh, doing doing the podcast was like uh, it was. It really helped me just getting the story out there and a lot of people got to know me through the podcast and again like Shane kind of has helped me as much mentally as physically and it just goes to show that in this sport you need to be mentally switched on as well as physically switched on and uh, yeah, it's, the balance has definitely been better than it's ever been and I'm enjoying cycling which is the, the main thing. Do you think about, you know, what might have been had you found that earlier in your career or, or can you not really afford to think like that? Yeah, I mean, it held me back for all those years. I mean, in hindsight, it would have been... I mean, if I'd have met somebody like Shane when I was 18, 19, it would be interesting to see where I'd be right now, like, but 
they'll change and you can't really live in the past too much, so just got to focus on the future. What's next then, Marcus? You were talking about our records and, you know, what's the, what are your kind of ambitions next year and beyond? Um, I, I need to sit down and, like, recalibrate after this and, and see, see where I'm going to go, but possibly, uh, well, should do the Irish Nationals at the end of the, the month and then take it from there. Well, Richard, some people may be raising their eyebrows at the mention of Shane Sutton there, a, a very divisive figure, one who left British cycling in controversial circumstances and certainly no, uh, you know, no angel, no, not someone who everyone gets on with. But I do think that uh, you know, clearly riders who do get on with Shane Sutton and find that his methods work, they really do work, um, but he's not for everyone. No, but um, Marcus Christie credits him with, with kind of saving his career. So, um, like I say, uh, uh, the latest incredible chapter in his story, and if you want to hear the rest of his story, uh, that episode is available to friends of the podcast. Supersonic, it's called, isn't it? Um, it's a great listen. Uh, somebody else, another divisive figure. <laughs> uh, that's a joke. Uh, Dan Bigham. Uh, he, he sort of um, raised the idea that some people do regard him as a divisive figure because he, of course, is probably as well known for his engineering and aerodynamic uh, expertise as for his athletic ability. Um, but he rode the time trial yesterday for Great Britain and put in a very, very good performance indeed. I think he was 16th in the end. And again, if you look at his diet of races and the sorts of riders he finished among, it is quite a phenomenal achievement. He rides for Ribble Weld Tight, but he has worked with a lot of top teams. He worked with the Danish team as well for the Olympic Games, helping them with aerodynamics and so on. And... Like I say, his expertise in that area perhaps overshadows his um, abilities as a, as a cyclist. And, um, you know, at 29, there's a lot he can probably still do on a bike. And I think he's uh, very ambitious over the next few years. Um, a lot of people surprised, as we'll hear in this interview, to see him in a Great Britain shirt as well, because he's been quite critical of... Um, some of the selections made by the British team over the last couple of years but here he is riding for Great Britain or here he was riding for Great Britain and here's what he had to say at the finish Hard, definitely hard um, mentally more than anything especially that final third just unrelenting around the entire course and yeah the final third I kind of struggled and I think that's a bit frustrating because I was up on max at the second time check and I think if I could have held back to the line then I think it'll be sitting somewhere like second or third now, which would be pretty sweet. Um, but yeah, I can't really complain. I think I got it all out at the tank. It was just, uh, yeah, the better guys out there on the day. You're physically okay, Dan, because you obviously didn't finish the Tour of Britain with a, a little injury concern. How are you now? Yeah, so I mean, I've had that injury since. I was knocked off by a car late 2015. So I've got two bulging discs in my back and I just have to be super careful not to do stupid things and crashing into a bush at 50k an hour is probably on a stupid things list uh, so um, I just had to make do as I could throughout Tour of Britain and that final breakaway stage 5 just it finished me off I was struggling to stand up to be honest so um, but to be completely honest on the CT bike does not affect me whatsoever which is great so it means I can train on that no stress um, yeah I, I cannot complain about one single bit about my, my run into this and I feel like uh, I did myself justice and I mean in my head I wanted to try and get a top 10. I felt like that was achievable. Um, looking at who's still to come, probably unlikely. I think I'm probably going to be somewhere like sort of 12th, 13th, 14th. We'll wait and see how it goes with that, that last group of hitters. But um, 
yeah, I think I don't think that's a bad thing. First World Championships, and hopefully I can keep progressing as an athlete. Um, this is my first ever UCI time trial, so <laughs> still lots to learn. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I always enjoy doing it. It's something I've always said that like, I want to, to recognise as being a British athlete and that, okay, I've not been able to represent on the track as much as I felt I was capable of doing um, for a multitude of different reasons that aren't really worth going into. But on the roadside, I think I've been well received and I get on really well with Bramia, the, the men's road captain, and he's been top-notch, cannot fault in one bit. So I met him about 12 months ago when we were finally allowed out to go meet people and um, just had a good proper chat of what's going to take for me to, to ride at, at Euros, at Worlds, at Com Games, at possibly even the Olympics. What, what does that look like from a from a execution perspective? What do I need power-wise, aero-wise, race result-wise? Who have we got to race against? Who have we got to beat? Literally get, um, answered every single question and has been great. So um, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed being a, a British rider and felt, felt really welcome. And I, I do get on with everyone. I think I'm not going to blame you guys, obviously the media like a story and um, I'm always happy to, to wear my heart on my sleeve and tell you how I feel it is. Um, and yeah, I'll be completely honest, I've disagreed with selections and, and with criteria and stuff before, but um, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to be vocal about that and I think that gets fed back and the system continues to improve because if, if you're not open about those things and you're not critical, then who's to say they even know that's a problem? And um, I'd encourage all athletes that no matter what sport you're in and and where you are as a standing, if you don't believe something's correct or right, then stand up for yourself because people do listen. They want the system to improve. Like BC aren't this big, like evil corporation that sometimes they're made out to be. They genuinely, they're there to support British cycling and they don't all know the answers and they're, they're willing to learn. And yeah, it's been great that they've, they've been so open. Well, before we move on from the time trial, Richard, it did strike me how, as an event, it, it is, uh, it does seem to lend itself to riders repeating victory this was Filippo Ganna's second in a row Rowan Dennis won two in a row before that Tony Martin of course won three in a row Cancellara won four in five years and Mick Rogers won three in a row um, but it did make me wonder whether after all our talk about the Tour of Britain being tailor-made for Wout van Aert and uh, what was it we said how how to van Aert proof uh, the uh, stage race well maybe we have the answer just make a, a race pan flat we actually had a couple of amusing tweets from listeners Paul Nicholson said for something that can be done to stop Van Art, make it Wouterproof mm, yeah so I certainly I certainly thought the time trial course was just about Wouterproofed yesterday um, the uh, the other comment we had in was uh, could we describe a stage race that is specifically designed to showcase the strength of the current Belgian champion to be described as Van Artisan that was from Malcolm Wake yes very good very good oh, and, yeah. <laughs> and just lastly uh, history buffs who might be wondering well hang on the UCI World Championships uh, may well be celebrating their centenary but uh, wasn't the first world professional road race champion Alfredo Binder in 1927, which even my math will tell you isn't quite 100 years ago. That is right, yes. The first world pro road race was in 1927 at the Nürburgring in Germany, won by Alfredo Binder. But the first UCI World Road Race Championships, which was for amateurs only, was in 1921. So there we go. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport fueled by science thanks very much indeed to science and sport for their support of the cycling podcast if you would like 25 percent off all your science and sport products go to scienceandsport.com 
and at the checkout enter enter the code SISCP25. Um, Science of Sport support all our podcasts here at the Cycling Podcast. And we've got a very busy week, haven't we, Lionel? We've got uh, the Cycling Podcast Feminar is coming out tomorrow with the news and reaction from today's women's time trial, which is about to get underway. Big crowds actually gathering here. I mentioned the, uh, the international nature of those. There are some Danes and some Swiss in front of me here waving their flags. Oh, the Swiss. Yeah, the Swiss. Big, big travellers, aren't they? Are they? Have they got huge cowbells as well, normally? No, but they'll, they'll be, be here for, around. I guess, the, they'll be the, the Marlon Rooser Supporters Club. Um, and they, well, they've got a big interest in this women's time trial this afternoon. I would say she's probably the favourite for that. So um, they'll be... Uh, They'll be supporting her, I've no doubt. We've also got an episode of Service Course coming out later this week, Lizzie Banks and Tom Wally. And uh, Life in the Peloton returns with Mitch Docker in conversation with Hannah Barnes, um, who is joining a Norwegian team. You know X next year, isn't she? She's moving on from Canyon SRAM. Um, Lionel, we're going to look ahead to the road races at the weekend. We've got uh, a day off on Thursday here at the World Championships and then the junior under-23 women's and men's road races at the weekend. We'll be looking forward to the women's road race in Femina tomorrow. Um, But a a really intriguing men's road race in prospect on a course. uh, Here we are in Flanders, but it's it's a course that doesn't really have too many echoes with too many of the very many races that there are here. I mean, Flesh Brabanson or Brabancy Pale is the one that's mentioned most regularly. I'm actually doing a, a ride on Thursday um, around the, the two circuits. So I'll be riding all of the climbs that they'll be tackling on Sunday. So I'll have a bit more insight into it after, after that. But it's, it's a race that, well, we're going to hear from Kasper Askreen in a moment, who will be part of a very strong Danish team. Um, he, he doesn't think it's going to be as hard as a Tour of Flanders. Um, and so the race is, uh, it could be quite an, an open race. And, you know, we look at the, the strong teams, certainly the, the Belgians, the, the Danish and the Italians. And Sonny Colbrelli has to be a, a strong contender. But I've even, I've even seen Caleb Ewan uh, mention himself as a, a, you know, an outsider to win, which suggests that... Um, you know, you could get quite a big group coming to the finish. Yeah, it could be really interesting. It could be, well, anything could happen. This is what I enjoy about the World Championship Road Race when it's on one of these courses that you can't quite tell in advance how it's going to play out. Obviously, the distance is a big factor, um, but if there's no sort of real set-piece, repetitive, serious climb... Um, as you know, as we have seen in recent editions, uh, you know, anything could happen. If if Caleb Ewan is lining up alongside Tadej Pogacar, Wout van Aert, Julian Alaphilippe, Matthew van der Poel, Primoz Roglic, Sonny Colbrelli, you know, it, it just shows you that the race could either come down to some kind of sprint or it will be a showdown between, you know, the, the three wonders of the world. That's van Aert, van der Poel and Alaphilippe plus um, the, the stage racers, Pogacar and Roglic, 
or it could be one of those ones where we're all left scratching our heads at the end and wondering, well, how did they let that happen? A sort of, you know, thinking back to 1999 and Oscar Freire's first World Championship win where he just clipped off the front and no one went with him. That's the beauty of the World Championships. It's an, it, I know lots of people like to see the rainbow jersey on the shoulders of a, of a rider that can genuinely be considered one of the, the, the sort of moving monuments of the peloton and in... in the, the current case that is Julian Alaphilippe, the the defending champion, uh, you know, wore the rainbow jersey with uh, you know an awful lot of um, of clout, hasn't he? You know, you would never say anything other than he's one of the finest riders in the world. But yeah, it's it's going to be, I think, a tactically intriguing and interesting race. And you mentioned the Danes, Richard. Their lineup looks on paper to be extremely strong, particularly um, given that they have Casper Asklin, the Tour of Flanders winner, Magnus Court, who of course was on fire at the Vuelta, and Michael Valgren, who on a course like this could well be uh, a, a rider to, to watch, especially when those attacks start going and, and there's the reluctance to, to bring things back together. Not to mention Mads Pedersen, the world champion two years ago, and I would also say Mikael Honoré has been riding really well the mm. last few weeks as well. They've got a really, really strong team and no obvious leader. You know, several guys who can win there. And it was really interesting speaking to Kasper Askreen at the finish yesterday. We'll hear from him now. But, you know, he, well, he rides with the Koenig quick step and he said that he would like the team to ride in, in the way that they do, with numbers rather than an out-and-out -out leader, uh, and to ride in a very attacking way as well. Again, I think just copying the, the style of racing that, that gets De Koenig Quickstep so many so many wins. Um, let's hear what Kasper Askreen, who'll be part of that Danish team, had to say at the finish yesterday about the world's road race this Sunday. Uh, I think we have several cars to, to play. Um, our biggest competitors are for sure going to be uh, the Belgians and, uh, and the Italians. Uh, they have really, really strong collective uh, squads as well. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, there's uh, a lot of a lot of good riders uh, spread out over the over the other nations. But I think the, the big nations are are uh, us, uh, Belgium and, and Italy, and. and which also means we have to take some responsibility uh, for the race, uh, which we are prepared to do. So, um, yeah, I expect, I expect uh, a fun race and, uh, and a hard race on Sunday. Compared to Flanders, I would say it's not uh, it's not as hard as Flanders. Um, if we had more laps around Overijse, I would say it, it would probably have been uh, as hard as, as as Flanders. But because we only have two laps there, and and one of them is is, is quite early in the race. Uh, I think it's going to be less hard. Um, I think the weather is going to play a, a big role. Uh, if it's raining, uh, the lap up in Leuven is going to be, be super hard uh, because uh, of all the corners through the city. Uh, that's really going to line up the bunch and, and uh, can easily make some gaps. So, uh, yeah, I think the, the weather is going to be uh, a huge factor and uh, something we have to follow, uh, follow very closely in the, in the coming week. We have a, we have a very flat hierarchy. Uh, uh, as a starting point, we have, we have five guys with, with, with three roles and, and uh, nobody has a, a clear uh, leadership uh, like, like Belgium, for example. Um, so, um, 
I think we're gonna try to employ a bit of a quick step tactic and uh, just to try to play on our uh, play our uh, numbers and uh, and hope we uh, hope we have a, a good situation uh, with uh, with more riders than the other nations. Well, that was Casper Askreen, uh, Lionel, and it, it, I wouldn't I wouldn't like to be in the position of coach of the Danish team in a way because they have got all these riders on form. How on earth do you decide which should be protected? How, you know, how, how the tactics should play out to favour these all very different but also quite similar riders? Um, I mean, Askreen's just super strong, you know, fourth in the time trial yesterday, uh, winner of the Tour of Flanders this year. Magnus Court is a pretty fast finisher. Michael Valgren's in red-hot form and he, he can sort of... Um, he can finish it off. I mean, he beat Sonny Colbrelli uh, at the weekend there, so, or just at the end of last week, rather. But just an embarrassment of riches and really, really hard to know. I mean, when you look at the Belgian team, we'll hear from Tim de Klerk in a moment, but they've got an obvious leader, Wat van Aert. You know, again, a very strong team, but a very kind of clear focus, if you like. And that might, that might just be a, a, an easier an easier plan to make for them. Well, we'll hear from Tim DeClerc now. I mean, obviously the El Tractor, we see him on, on the front for his team to kind of quick step so much of the year. And here in Flanders, he will be riding in a, a similar role, but for a, a, a different rider. I guess this is the man here in the red, yellow and black jersey that you'll be working for at the world. Yep, it's uh, okay. It's not a guy from the, from my team, but uh, yeah, I think I can almost say he's a, he's a friend. So he's a he's a he's a colleague I, I get along really well with. So that's also also gonna be uh, more easy to to turn the the button and uh, and to ride for him uh, for one day. You've been a professional a long time, but have you ridden the World Championships at home? Uh, no, never. I, it's, I, it's only one time every 20 years, I think. So it's nice to grab that opportunity and to ride for, uh, for my, in my own country. It's going to be pretty special, isn't it, I guess? I mean, what do you know about the course for, um, at the moment? Have you, have you had a good look at it? I've, uh, I've looked at it already on the profile. I need to do a recon still, but... I know it's gonna be uh, a thing, uh, a race between uh, the hippies of Schierens in Leuven and uh, a race like Overese, so uh, or Brabantse Pale. It's gonna be uh, a thing between uh, those two races. So uh, yeah, it's gonna be exciting for sure. And lastly, I mean, it's a special jersey, isn't it? The Belgian national team jersey, the light blue yeah. with the, the bands of colour. I mean, uh, is it as iconic in Belgium as as we feel it is from you know outside of Belgium? Absolutely, I think it's. Uh, yeah, Belgium is, is still one of the yeah the, the really countries where cycling lives. So uh, if you can re represent that uh, that uh, nation in such a beautiful jersey, it's always something uh, really special. So yeah, that gives uh, gives some extra motivation. And maybe replace it with uh, you know a, a version of the rainbow jersey if you manage to help Wout van Aert win the title. Yeah, that would be that would be really really nice. But uh, no, of course it's a bit it's a bit uh, two different races normally you're always there for uh, the queen and quick step who always also pays you so that's that's normal but that uh, for one race in the year uh, we change it of course it's very much a home race for tim de klerk isn't it rich because the race finishes in leuven which is de klerk's um, 
well, it's the town where he was born. Um, so not just a, a Flandrian home race, but a hometown race for Tim de Klerk. It does interest me how the Belgians will um, ensure that they keep Wout van Aert in contention. I mean, Wout van Aert's capable of keeping himself in contention, of course. But, you know, how do they play the Remco Evenepoel card? Do they put him in some kind of move early on um, and 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 put the pressure on other teams. It's going to be really interesting to see what they do, knowing that Wout van Aert, I mean, you have to think, is the outstanding favourite for the race. Um, I can't, you know, if you had to rank people prior to the, to the start, van Aert is the number one, isn't he? I think so. I'll tell you who isn't, in my view, is uh, Tari Pogacar. Um, I, I saw him at the finish essay and he stopped briefly to speak. And it, it's strange, he... He did not have the air of a, a two-time Tour de France winner about him, it has to be said. I mean, it's kind of, seeing him out of context like that um, was was a bit strange in his Slovenian kit without the usual entourage around him. Um, and having just done a, a, a quite a disappointing ride in the time trial for him, as, as he said. And I think he's, he's feeling the fatigue a bit at this stage of the season. Uh, doesn't seem to be at his best. And is probably not one of the favourites for Sunday's road race. It's worth mentioning the British team, isn't it? I mean, they've got a very strong lineup as well. I mean, Ethan Haight has been on great form recently. Um, Tom Pidcock, who knows what kind of form he's going to be in, but they've got a couple of fast finishes, Mark Cavendish, <laughs> um, Jake Stewart as well, um, Fred Wright. A very strong team indeed that they're putting in the race and could well have uh, uh, you know, something to say. Um, Cesare Benedetti, um, who we had on the podcast during the Vuelta, uh, was an Italian, now a, a Pole, and he's riding for Poland, having just recently switched nationality. He's riding for Poland in these World Championships, and I imagine that will be a pretty special occasion for him. Interesting. Big money transfer to, uh, to Poland. Well, you'll be there, won't you, Rich, over the weekend watching the road races and uh, we'll be reconvening next week, I'm, I'm sure. Yes, I will. I'll be here. I'm, uh, I'm heading home tonight and back on Thursday and I'm putting together over the course of this week uh, um, a kind of an, an updated and improved version of Lionel Flanders. Uh, <laughs> not, not, not over five parts this time, but uh, no, it's like something a bit different. I mean, you did your Lionel Flanders series in 2017 and this feels like quite an important time for cycling in Flanders not least because the last couple of editions of the Tour fans have been behind closed doors and there's really a sense here that um, the fans are returning to cycling and I think here in Flanders more than anywhere else in the world cycling is a spectator sport you know a lot of the a lot of the fans are not cyclists um, they are they are fans of cycling and, and that's that doesn't really happen to the same extent I don't think anywhere else um, so the fans by the roadside have always been a, a big and important ingredient of bike racing here in Flanders that's coming back this this week and I'm going to be speaking to people uh, well the fans the the people who run Flanders Classic some of the riders some of the people who run teams here etc to get um, to take the temperature, I suppose, of cycling in Flanders in 2021. And you're doing a bit of um, riding. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Doing a bit of riding as doing well. Doing a bit of riding. I did a, did a ride this morning and I, uh, I'll i be back with my bike on Thursday to take part in uh, an official event organised by the organisers here. Uh, 
on Thursday, over 100 kilometres, riding all the all the climbs of the World Championship road races. So that will give me a cracking insight into exactly what the riders will be uh, confronting at the weekend. You'll be almost fit enough to join Lance Armstrong on one of his tours in Mallorca. Just £30,000, I me. think. Just £30,000 for a place. Well, if you'd like to sign up as a friend <laughs> of the podcast, uh, go to <laughs> thecyclingpodcast.com. No, we promise none of your money will go no, towards me joining Lance Armstrong but I understand, on a cycling holiday in Mallorca. I understand that uh, the former Wimbledon tennis champion, Richard Krychek, uh, the big serving Dutchman uh, who won, I think, in 1996, has, whether he's paid or whether he's going along as a, as a guest, I, I don't know, but apparently he's going to be riding with uh, Lance Armstrong in Mallorca well, at some point next this, month. This big serving Scotsman will not be joining him. <laughs> I, I, I like big servings, uh, so that, that kind of works for me as well. Um, well, Lionel, listen, I better go and turn my attention to the, the women's time trial. Um, before we go this week, though, we return to the very sad and, and tragic news of the, the death of Chris Anker Sorensen. We said that we wanted to hear really from Brian Nygaard, um, who is a Dane and worked with uh, Chris Anker Sorensen for many years and considered him a very good friend. Um, so we, we thought we, we should uh, catch up with Brian and, and hear, hear about um, Chris Anker Sorensen from somebody who knew him very well. Well, Brian, terrible news for Danish cycling as a whole over the weekend with the death of Chris Anker Sorensen. Tell me, how did you know him? I got to know him when um, the team I, I worked for at the time considered taking him in as a neo-professional uh, at the time. And that was, I think that the team was still called CSC at the time, or, or maybe it was already Saxon Bank, I can't, I can't remember. But he was obviously a rider that you could see physically because he was a very, very skinny guy and, and Denmark historically doesn't produce that many climbers. So he, we could tell that he was someone that had obvious qualities. But I remember that I think we were sort of specifically looking at him at the Tour of Denmark, which actually has one quite hilly stage, the one that Evan and Paul won this year. And But Chris was so nervous that he that he, he actually didn't ride that well that day. But Bjarne was quite convinced that he had the goods and, and he, he was obviously a really smart guy. At the time he was studying biology at university and, and he was really sort of not sort of the typical bike rider in, in his mental outfit so it was yeah Bjarne was really keen on taking him on and then it became quite obvious that he had I think even significantly better qualities as a bike rider than than most people were aware of because you know when you mainly ride in Denmark if, if you're a good climber you can say the same happened for Vingegaard it wasn't actually until he started racing outside of Denmark where the Hinia races were many and, and plenty and, and really difficult that we, that we saw what Chris was capable of. He was a very hard worker. Uh, what made him a good bike rider was his, his dedication. He, he worked extremely hard for what he, he achieved. And he, you know, he, we all know about his results on the bike. He, he, he was a really valued domestique for his captains, but he also was able to win quite a few important races and, and for himself. And he was with the team, Team CSC, for a, a long time, wasn't he? So, uh, although not a prolific winner in the Grand Tours, always always a figure in the mountain stages. He won one stage of the Giro, didn't he, in 2010? But a very aggressive rider in mountain stages. Yeah, really a rider who wasn't afraid on afraid taking chances and, and, and trying to, like, you know, if, if, 
if it was just a case case of, of pure selection on the mountain stage in the GC, he 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 probably could finish you know among the twenty best climbers. But he the victories that he won he won because he he showed initiative and 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 took it on uh, to to really ride aggressively and go in a breakaway. That's how he took his big stages. And I, and I remember uh, the one in the Giro because I was at the top of Tamanillo uh, myself. And it's sort of the thing in, in cycling, which is a wonderful thing that you know you you change teams, but the the friends you have. Scattered all over, all kinds of teams and, and and geographical places. And I knew Chris really well because he was living in Luca at the time, and and so was I. And and you, that just meant that you you were bound to travel to the same uh, destinations. And, and even if I wasn't on the same team as him anymore, we we always kept in contact. And the few on the few rare occasions that I rode my bike, I, I would I would see at least one other Danish rider, and it would often be Chris. And what was he like as a person? Yeah, you can probably hear me sighing because that's that's the hardest part to talk about when you, when young life gets torn away from you know from, from you and when you know that he's a, he's a father and then and you're a father yourself, Lionel, and so am I. There's just aspects of this that are unbearable. And he was, first and foremost, a father and a, and a family man in my opinion. Because I've seen him in, in very different work situations, both as a bike rider, but also we. I think we probably did commentating. I think I've done 500 hours of live commentating with Chris, and that also meant traveling a lot, you know, at the tour. And it sounds like a really easy job to be a TV commentator, but it's actually not. It, it requires a lot of preparation. And and Chris was just able to do all those things, and then he had so much energy and time left to really talk to his daughters every day, talk to his wife. And and one thing I think that distinguishes Chris, Chris especially was that he he had the ability to never ever make his own problems anyone else's burden, but he was always the first to help other people if they had any. He just brought happiness, you know, he was, wherever he went, he was just always really, always in good spirits, always in a good mood, and that, I think that's one of the reasons why he was also such a good commentator. He was really always very enthusiastic about the races, always, and had a great sense of humor. It was very entertaining commentating with him, and I think that the spectators and the TV spectators had the same feeling, and I remember saying to Rasmus Stehoy, who, you know, we, we, we did the commentating together, the three of us, that we can never complain because sometimes Chris, I mean, the first year we did the tour, Chris was still a professional bike rider and he rode every morning other than, you know, sadly that's also how he, he left us by, by doing recon. It was very important to him that he, that he knew as much as possible about the parkour that he was commentating on. But he was still a professional bike rider. So I think he rode around 3,000 kilometers that tour and he did a lot of the full stage commentating which is often five six hours then the post studio where we were available as well and we were so tired but chris never complained <laughs> it was just, yeah that was that was just how he was he was just naturally really really tuned into what he cared about in life and it was impossible not to feel that if you were close to him and and lastly i mean how how has this news been uh taken in Danish cycling and, and I guess Danish sport as uh, you know as a as a wider thing I mean um, you know how will Chris Anker Sorensen be remembered Chris was a really well-known figure in Denmark you know as it's as, 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 as probably obvious to everyone that cycling is a huge sport and has grown immensely in in Denmark and and I think also thanks to the, the way that Chris has been able to educate you don't educate your spectators but I think you inspire them to be curious to understand more about the sport and Chris was certainly probably the best of that ever in, in in Danish cycling commentary. And and 
but he was also someone that people really liked. You know, he was just a very, very popular person. And it's just an incredible loss when, you know, it's when, when someone that age just in the blink of an eye just disappears, a part of life seems like it stops and it, and you don't really know how to start it again because it doesn't feel like it can go on in the same way when someone really important is missing. And, and I think that's often the feeling we have when, when we lose someone, especially when we lose someone um, that we care about, but also when it just happens in such a horrible way and, and, and obviously very unexpected. So it's a huge loss. And I think the morning across other sports as well and in general, you know, it's, it's you know, it's everyone from the from the prime minister to to all this, the the people he, who who loved what he did for TV, who who are really sad these days. And, and yeah, it's really hard for me to think about how you know I lost a friend and I lost a colleague and someone that I'll I'll never forget. But someone lost their father and someone lost their husband, someone lost their son and you know someone lost someone that was dear to them in in, in a completely different way. That when you have family yourself, you really understand the severity of of, of Chris not being here. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.